It's good to be with you today. If we haven't met, my name is Mike Moses. I am the lead pastor of Lake Forest Church Huntersville. We're the Lake Forest family of churches. There's Lake Forest Huntersville, Lake Forest Church Davidson, in case you don't know where you are right now, and Lake Forest Church Westlake. Uh, it meets at Lincoln Charter Elementary. And uh, so it's great to be part of the family of churches with you guys. There's a real synergy between our congregations. Uh, in particular, we think that we do starting new churches uh, and missions better together as a family of churches than we could alone. Uh, in fact, God has really gifted us, if you're newer here, uh, uh, uniquely as a church to be a church planting church, to be starting every one to three years different congregations in different places to, uh, to, to serve a, a different or unique place or tribe of people uh, with the message of God's grace to them through Jesus Christ. Um, it's a unique calling to be a church planting family of churches. Only 4% of churches in North America will ever start a new congregation. Uh, and less than 1% will start more than one. And so it's, it's just a unique gift of our family of churches. I have some news for you. If you were praying, some of you were praying about this. Just last week, uh, Reverend Victor Leal and his wife Rosemary and their daughter, uh, who are in Mexico, received a, the green light for immigration status to come be the pastor who will start our new Spanish-speaking sister church. And so we're really excited about that. Yes. So we look forward to, be, to, to, be, to the family growing uh, along with you guys. So we're the, the, the same church family, each with their own unique vibe, and I love being here and being part of the, of the worship vibe of Lake Forest Davidson for this one uh, Sunday. I'm a fa big fan of Michael Flake, your pastor here, and I'm glad he's getting a little bit of vacation around he and Mandy's wedding anniversary. Well, today we continue our sermon series, Running on Empty, and we're going to deal with one thing. Uh, now, uh, a week ago Monday, uh, sad to say, the Moses family lost a big chunk of money all at once. Here's how it happened. My second son, my youngest son, Austin, is a senior in college, and he came home last weekend uh, the weekend before last, and we had a good time, and Monday he was driving back to his college campus, and everything was going well for him, and going well in life, and going well in his semester, and I got a call from him during my lunch meeting last Monday, and I thought, well, excuse me, this is my son, he's on the road, I should probably take this. Dad, the car started making these bad noises like a truck, and then it just went clunk, clunk, and I could barely pull over off the side of the road, and, and it just stopped. I'm on the side of I-85 in Burlington. What should I do? Uh, like, well, first of all, are you standing between the car and traffic or between the car and the side of the road? I was, he was on the side of the road, so my son is no fool. That was good to know. He was over there. And I said, well, why don't you check the oil and call me back? I don't know what to do. So long story short, my very intelligent son had never once thought to check the oil or think about if you might need to add oil to the car that we were providing for him. And the car was known to have a small oil leak. And so the engine was burned out. Here's a picture of, of the aftermath. Done, kaplooey, headed for the junkyard. We just got junk credit for it. Now, to in Austin's defense, the, uh, and the reason he would let me tell the story, the oil warning light, it turns out, was burned out. So, it, in his defense... So Austin's trip to school was going great, but it turned out he lacked one thing. He was running on empty of an essential thing, oil. Notice how I so subtly tied into the sermon series there. Running on empty, 
Uh, now, here's what makes the, this story much funnier to my wife Angie and my mom and dad. They think this story is funny. Because if you're a counselor, Meredith, you, you, you may be familiar with the language of uh, family generational patterns or even generational curses handed down. So here's what's funny. On Interstate 85, which is where Austin was, on, in Oxford, North Carolina, just 62 miles, I measured it, from that spot where Austin was last Monday, 32 years earlier in 1986, I, too, was a college student driving back to up I-85 to my campus after a weekend at home. I had, the trip was going fine, but I lacked one thing, which was most essential for my trip, oil in my car that day. Or I should say my parents' car. So 32 years earlier on the same highway, I too was running on empty and my college car engine burned up and was junked for a few dollars, like father, like son. <laughs> in my defense, my parents never once taught me there was such a thing as oil in a car. I knew how to put gas in it and keep the windshield wiper fluid full, uh, but it turns out there were other things that needed filling. Well, the story of it being all good, except one thing running on empty, an essential thing, reminds me of another young man. This is a young man with big dreams about the future. He was between 25 and 30. Uh, this young man was a tiger. He was a go-getter. He was on his way to the top, and he had made a bunch of money at a young age in his 20s. I think he had made it in real estate, but we can't be sure. Well, that's one of the best ways to make money if, if you know what you're doing. If you don't, it's a good way to lose a lot of money fast. Limited partnerships, condos, buy low, sell high, turn swampland into high-rise apartments. He made a lot of money at a very young age. He had risen to the top, and yet he still felt like in some way he was running on empty, which was odd, because this rising star of a young man was also very religious. He believed in God. He believed God's word. The Ten Commandments were his law and his way of life. Unlike many others, he didn't forget the Almighty on his way to the top. He didn't steal or cheat or he didn't sleep around. He was a straight arrow in a crooked world, a true believer and a hard worker, a combination that down to today often leads to monetary success. And still, he felt that he was somehow running on empty inside. Something was missing. And he didn't know what that something was, but he knew he wasn't all that he could be. And one day, that young, successful man went to see another man who was a carpenter slash rabbi in the region of Galilee in the north of Israel in the first century AD, a man named Jesus. And this young man at the top of his game, with all the money you could want, he had it all, he came to Jesus with a penetrating question. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. If you want to turn in your Bible, we'll be in Mark 10 the rest of this morning. Good teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He wanted something of eternity that he felt was missing in him. And his heart told him his money and religion wasn't enough. Now, he's certainly honest here in admitting his need, which is a virtue. And then in verse 17, we, earn, we learn another interesting fact. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him. And that fits the picture. This guy was a young, aggressive leader, and he gets aggressive in coming to Jesus for this need in his life. Now, from, from our point of people, then at this point, Jesus gives him an answer that has confused people down through the centuries, and I hope it's not too confusing to us today, but I hope it helps um, unearth something in each of our lives. Uh, now, from 
our point of view, it doesn't seem as though the question and Jesus' immediate answer really go together. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And here's Jesus' answer, verse 18. Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Now, that statement, while seemingly almost irrelevant to the question or confusing, has confused some people into thinking that perhaps Jesus meant something like, well, God is good, and you shouldn't call me good because I'm not really God. But as a matter of fact, from, from reading the Gospels, that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus is meaning to say here. Jesus is taking the word good literally. And the young man had called him good teacher, probably just a way of being respectful on the surface. But he wasn't necessarily thinking of the meaning of the word. And so Jesus' reply is now to help grab this man from the surface and be sure he's ready to deal with the depths of his life. And Jesus understands and points to the fact that true goodness comes from God alone. And Jesus is saying, hey, when you call me good, do you really know what you're saying? Like if I'm good in the ultimate sense, it's because I'm not merely a good person. It's because I'm God in human flesh. And so when Jesus says, why do you call me good? He's asking, do you really know who you're talking to? And will you really receive the answer as though it's from the, the, the God-man, the Messiah? Uh, you know, we, uh, we lost America's pastor uh, uh, a week and a half ago, Billy Graham. Uh, the thing that I loved most about Dr. Graham was that dude just pointed to Jesus relentlessly. Uh, solely. That's all he pointed to. Not religion, not one brand of politics. He just pointed to Jesus. And I hope his successors will, uh, will follow his lead. But you know, perhaps someone, whether it was Billy Graham or someone else, has pointed you to Jesus. I don't know who pointed this young man to Jesus, but you're here now learning about him. Maybe you pray to him. Maybe you even ask him questions like this young man did. I want you to notice that in the gospel. It's clear that his every answer back to you is as the son of God, not just a good teacher. And let's receive his words that way to us today. And, and so now before the young man can even answer that point about good or not good, Jesus plunges right on ahead. Uh, verse 17 and 18. Well, young man, if you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus was first kind of abstract philosophically here, and now he, uh, now he brings up the Ten Commandments. What's really going on here? Well, most uh, Bible commentators think that this first century young urban professional wants what many of us want today. Dude wanted a list. He just wanted a list. He's like, hey, in my work life, I've watched the, the, the TV infomercials late night of how to get rich on real estate. Estate. I follow the list, and now I, I'm, do, I'm rolling in money. Now give me a list of the things I need to do spiritually to make sure I go to heaven, quote unquote. And give me a list. I'll check it off, and when I get to the bottom of the list, I'll know that I'm good when it comes to God. And Jesus is kind of like, well, fine. If you want a list, I'll give you one. It's called the Ten Commandments. Why don't you work on that for a while? Now notice, Jesus doesn't quote from the first half of the Ten Commandments. He quotes only from the second half. Uh, they're found in Exodus chapter 20, and you may or may not know, the first four of the Ten Commandments are vertical about our relationship with God. The, the, the Commandments 5 through 10 are horizontal. They're about our relationship 
to others. And Jesus doesn't quote from the first part here at all, so evidently maybe this young man is having most of his problems in his relationship with other people. And so Jesus is like, okay, here's the list if, if that's what you want. Here's Yahweh's top 10. Keep those 10 commandments perfectly, and when you get to the end, you'll be okay. Now this young man, we see, again, do, does not lack for confidence, because here's his answer, verse 20. And he said to Jesus, teacher, I have kept all these commandments from my youth on up. To which I say, right. Anybody read the Ten Commandments lately? Like, all of them? Uh, like, really? Now, on the surface level, it's probably true. Like, I'm sure he hadn't murdered anybody or committed adultery. And that's sort of the surfacey view of, I'm a good person. I haven't robbed a bank lately. And uh, I'm nicer than, the, than my next-door neighbor. That's the surfacey view of a good person. But on a deeper level, we can say that this man reveals here that he's self-deceived about himself. Like things are good for him, so he can get by with a surfacey view of life uh, and of human nature, which is something that people who are well off can afford to do more than others. But he's in denial about the heart of darkness in every human being and his own capacity for deceit, anger, lust, betrayal or self-dealing he's sincere but he's sincerely wrong when anyone says i've perfectly kept the ten commandments from the beginning of my of my life until now you automatically know that number one that person doesn't know anything about the real meaning of the ten commandments and number two he doesn't really know much about himself and in fact what jesus offers us and as we grow in the spiritual life is not only a knowledge about god but what Jesus offers us is a true knowledge of ourselves as persons, which is also uh, the, the, the spiritual way to live with self-knowledge. In fact, there was another day in the Sermon on the Mount, it's recorded in Matthew 5, when Jesus gave a, a teaching on the deeper meaning of the Ten Commandments. Uh, and, and in that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, hey, when the commandments say you shall not murder, it's not just talking about not taking a gun to somebody's head. Jesus taught, if you have an angry thought that you cherish and hold on to against your brother or sister, if you're bitter against that person, if you nurture resentment, that thought itself is murder or hatred in your mind. And though you're smiling and look great on the outside, that is the sin of breaking the sixth commandment, being filled with hatred and bitterness. Jesus also said, and, and the commandment about do not commit adultery, he said, to look on another person and lust after them. Not to be attracted to somebody or not just window shopping, but when you turn the images over and over lustfully, he said that's actually breaking the commandment against adultery, even though you've never jumped in bed with that person. And so J Jesus teaches this deeper meaning of the Ten Commandments. And although this young man looks good on the outside, Jesus is telling him, wait a second, bro, you're not as awesome as you think you are, and humility will be necessary if you want the life I'm offering. Humility and honesty about your own sinful condition and need for forgiveness from God are a necessity to know God. Then Jesus drops this bombshell of a teaching here that, that hit him like a bomb cyclone that's just gone through the Northeast this weekend. Uh, looking at him, verse 21, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack. And that must have floored him. Because the man is like, hey man, I got stuff going for me in life. My car's clean. 
It's full of gas. The windshield wiper fluid is there. I just vacuumed it out. Uh, just used the armor all on the, on the dashboard. It's looking good. Oh, wait. There's one thing that I lack. Oh, oh, that thing called oil? That's kind of necessary. What do you suppose it is that this young man, this rich young man lacks? Well, Jesus now says something to him that you would never say to someone if you were trying to convince them to become a Christian. Verse 21. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Those are some intense verbs. Look at them. Go, sell, give, come, follow. Jesus is here being a manly man savior, calling for this young man to resist the passivity of culture and shallowly skimming life and step up with courage and bravery to live the abundant life God created for him by following Jesus and his way of life. And notice, the man's question was about, hey, how can I have eternal life or go to heaven? But Jesus' answer is like, hey, this is about life now, here and today, not just one day in heaven. Now, I wonder what it would be like if, if we chose this as our theme verse for joining Lake Forest Church. This is like the requirement to be a ministry partner. You probably wouldn't have to add that third service on Easter Sunday if this became our requirement. But this is intense, and, and it, has, uh, it has intimidated people for centuries. And so these are scary words, but, but let me, as one of, uh, one of our pastors here, let me just help put it in perspective for you and just say, chill out a bit. This is the only time Jesus ever said this specifically to someone as a condition for following him. But why did he say it to this earnest young man? Well, most Bible scholars agree in thinking it's because this is where this young man had his soul problem. Uh, growing up in the 70s on Saturday afternoons, sometimes I would flip TV channels between wrestling on one channel and the other channel would be Soul Train. The disco show. That, I loved that. Uh, my favorite Eddie Murphy movie back in the 90s was Coming to America. Maybe it was in the 80s. And the family in the movie, they sold a product called Soul Glow. Well, this man has a soul problem. And Jesus, the great physician, has put his finger on it. And he's diagnosing it for this young man. This fellow who looks so good on the outside... On the inside, he was apparently totally controlled by the love of money. And Jesus is saying to this fine-looking, upstanding, good young citizen, hey, if you want to be my follower, which is the way God created you to live in this life and on into the next life, you're going to have to break the stranglehold of money in, on your life. In fact, you can't come to me with your hands full of something else as your God or your idol. You have to let it go so you have room for me to give you the life that is truly life. And I wonder, you and I, we may have the same tendency of this being our soul problem, S-O-U-L problem, uh, or it may be something else for you and I that we tend toward. For this man, money had become not just an object or a thing, money had become his God with a little G. It was his false idol, and Jesus knew this as the God-man, he diagnosed it. And so he's, he's now reaching to this man at his point of need. Going, man, you're going to have to give up your idolatry of money before you can really be my disciple. And so the throne of that man's life, if you can picture the, the throne in Game of Thrones, the, the throne of your life and mine has room for only one person or one thing on its seat. 
not two. As Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. It's one or the other. That principle is as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. And I wonder for you, I've been reflecting on this because of this passage that I've been wrestling with for a couple of weeks now. What, what in my life do I tend to allow to crawl up on the throne of my life and displace Almighty God as the center of my life and, and the ruler of my life? What, what is it that, that I either invite there or I passively allow there? Because that is the tendency of the fallen human heart and God wants to remake it with him at the center. But we do need to deal specifically with this man's uh, soul problem uh, because it's still relevant to us today here in Davidson and Cornelius. Everywhere that people tend to love money or worship the things that money can buy, perhaps if, if money is in the center of our life, it may be the status that it represents. It may be the fact that it's the comfort and the things that I can provide for my family. And so I want to say, because this, this has not changed as a tendency uh, 2,000 years later, so as one of your pastors, I also kind of want to say, on the other hand, don't chill out. M Jesus is right. Money frequently chokes out the things of God in people's lives. Uh, do you know it's a fact? There's a fact behind this. A fact, fact, fact. That the higher an income level an American gains, the less percent of that income that they, uh, that they give to charity of any kind, the poor or world relief or a, a Christian project. The, the more we make, the less as a percent we give as Americans. I think that's a really important sort of check yourself before you wreck yourself statistic. Like going, people have not changed since this Jesus encountered that young man that day. The power of money and its false promise that it can grab on our hearts remains and so i'm not saying we have to do literally what jesus said here to this man and sell everything uh, but the principle is true he laid open the human soul to this those two thousand years ago and and we w would we let him be the great physician and be dealing with our own soul today as we hear him because this young man believed what some of us have come to believe subconsciously that money is an ultimate matter but what's true is money is a great servant, but a terrible master. Money is awesome. It's an awesome creation by God. It's just how human society works. And it's a good thing to become good at your work and excel there and earn whatever you earn to provide for yourself, to provide for a family. It's a wonderful thing to build a business or a unit of a business that allows for people to do things that God's made them good at and to flourish in many ways with, with the products that you produce and for them to provide for their family. Money is a great servant, but a terrible master. Now, it would not be helpful for me as a pastor to not offer at least one or two uh, practical ways of, of, of what does the Bible say about ways to diagnose, to self-diagnose? Is this an issue for me? And, and I just want to offer there a couple of very measurable ways that the Bible says we can uh, see, uh, help diagnose if money is our servant or our master. And one of them is, is to be measurably generous. The Bible teaches this clearly throughout. To, to give 10% uh, or more to God's work, to your church, to missions, and to the poor to serve their needs. Uh, Jesus, in fact, called tithing 
just a basic part of the ABCs of following him. It, it shapes us into generous people and the image of a generous God. Jesus also said, where your treasure or where your money is, there your heart is also. And because that's true, my heart is downcast this morning because my money is at UNC Chapel Hill with Austin and in that junkyard where the car is. Uh, and we, we lost a, a heinous game last night. Um, money, it, 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 where your treasure or your money is, there your heart is also. If it's not measurable, it's not real. Um, I wish I had a dime for every time I've heard a husband say something like this. When I've been meeting with a couple who are in crisis of their marriage or a really hard spot, and, and for some reason this often comes out of the, the, the mouths of men in, in our area, and it would be something like this. Well, I know, honey, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't. But, but if you could just know I love you in my heart, which is often in that context a lame excuse for not loving her in measurable, sacrificial words and deeds according to the ways that she's been asking to be loved. And so measurability externally demonstrates priority internally. And that's the same in our walk with God. Measurable is real. Intentions and thoughts are only potential. And so this tithing is sort of God's words, top prescription for rejecting the love of money and shaping us into generous people. A second practical measurable way to be sure that money is our servant and not our master is to simply not consume 100% of what comes in weekly, monthly, annually. Like to give and save first and peg my standard of living to about 80%. Once a person is, is above the poverty line in our society. Like the, the book of Proverbs says this about 10 different ways if you want to read it. And, and by saving and giving first and then pegging our standard of living to what's left, this is the way to live a contented life when it comes to material things. And it actually means something for our standard of living, for sure. It's the same peaceful, God-centered way of ordering our financial world and trusting God with it. So, uh, those of you who are college students or teenagers, I encourage you to start tithing your first 10% and saving your second 10% of what you make in college, and especially your first job in your 20s. Angie and I did that at the very beginning and it became a natural lifestyle and led to peace and contentment in our finances, no matter our income level, which has varied widely. Um, well, finally, we come to what I think is the most hopeful part of this encounter with Jesus. Verse 22. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, I find this hopeful because it means the words of Jesus hit home with him. He didn't do the Heisman and say, what you talking about, Willis? I, I'm not listening to you. He didn't argue with Jesus. It's, he, he was sad. It had hit home. He saw the possibility of another life, but he was not ready to take it. And I wonder what happened to him later. This discussion takes place, by the way, just a few days before Jesus' crucifixion and then resurrection. That's one reason we've chosen it in this series during the season of Lent leading up to Easter. Did this man eventually become a follower of Jesus, we don't know for certain, but I sure wouldn't be surprised. Now, interesting, the man just wanted heaven when he dies, but Jesus said, this is about a whole life now on this planet of following me wholeheartedly on my mission of love to the world. 
And, and notice he said, follow me. It, what that entailed was, come follow me, join me in my work of reconciling people to one another. Join me, young dude, in my mission of reconciling broken groups and tribes and races back to one another. Join me in my ministry of reconciling people to their heavenly father. Come join this mission of mine. Make it our mission. And that's Jesus' invitation to you and me today, every day, to see our life and our work as joining his reconciling mission of love to the world. Well, Jesus gives us the moral of the story, and we don't like this part either. It's kind of like a punchline. Verse, uh, uh, I'll read this from Luke 18, 24. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Huh. Well, why is that? Why is it that, that this particular false idol, that when we let it be on the throne of our life instead of Jesus, why is it that this one is so almost impossible to enter God's kingdom if we're holding on to it? And Jesus means this literally. This is not a metaphor. Uh, it, well, it's a, it is a psychological and sociological fact that those who are well off tend to trust in our riches, which leads to all kinds of soul problems that we could all talk about, including handing off the affluenza virus to our children if this is our particular false idol. And we must know that if we live in the late Norman area um, and are above the, the poverty line here, we are the rich, statistically speaking, relative to the rest of the world. And, and this must hit us like the early disciples who, who said, they, they asked the obvious question, Mark 10, verse 26. They were amazed and they said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. In your own strength, he's saying, you, do, you are not strong enough to pull that false idol of money if it's gotten in the center of your life. You can't pull it off the throne in your own personal game of thrones. But I can if you invite me to. In your own strength, that marriage that, that seems like it's dying is going to continue down into the dust. But all things are possible with God. In your own strength as a man or a woman or a teenager, that addiction may lead to complete ruin and life going down the drain. But with God, all things are possible, he says. The French philosopher Pascal said there's a God-shaped vacuum inside the heart of every person. And if you or I don't fill that vacuum with Jesus, with God our Heavenly Father, we will fill it with something else. And when we do, uh, we find out what that rich young man found out years ago. We can have it all, but it's still not enough. We're still running on empty. And since nature abhors a vacuum, that's a fact, if you don't fill the, the throne of your life or the center of it with God, then we will fill it with whatever our own favorite or tendency toward a false idol is. And it may be different for many of us. Money or career, success, power, prestige, pleasure, sex. What is it that you and I tend to allow to crawl up on the throne of our life and displace Jesus in the center? Because these are all good things as a servant to our life ordained by God, but they are each massively destructive as master of our life. 
And like this young urban professional 2,000 years ago, like the engine on my old Peugeot without oil in it, we will not be satisfied. And it will be said of us, as it was said of the rich young ruler, one thing, one thing we lack. And that one thing is a living, dynamic, moment-by-moment, life-transforming relationship with Jesus Christ as the Lord and leader of our life and our Savior as our God, ruling our life from its throne in an orderly way instead of being relegated to the tool shed out back of our life. By the way, one detail that Mark includes, this story is told in three of the four Gospels, and there's one thing that Mark alone records, and it's beautiful. Verse 21 of Mark 10, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Just like any doctor delivers news that may be hard, they deliver it out of love to say, this is your condition, here's the cure. And Jesus, though he delivered a hard word, well, some of the hardest words that we've dealt with for 2,000 years in the Christian church, he did so out of love for that man. He loved him enough to, to, to tell him what was holding him back and tell him the truth, even if he would walk away. But Jesus doesn't just love that young man that day. Jesus loves you. Because a few days later, on his way to the cross, Jesus said, hey, the greatest love known is when someone lays down their life for that of another, for your friends. And Jesus calls you his friend whom he loves because that's what he went on to do. He willingly laid down his life, dying on the cross, to representatively atone for your sins, my sins, the sins of the world. And then he physically resurrected from the dead three days later, showing victory over death, evil, suffering, and all injustice. And he offers you and me to participate in his kind of eternal life now, an abundant life with him in the center, living on his mission of reconciling love to the world. And he invites us to also join him into eternity as we share in his resurrection by faith. Have you asked Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice for your sins and to give you his resurrection and his life in the center of your life yet? Christian, are you seeking to live by the power of his resurrection daily, not your own strength, and visibly putting him on the throne of your life daily? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that all of your promises are true and are good. Thank you that Jesus looked at this young man and loved him. God, I thank you, Jesus, that as you look at each of us sitting here in these circles right now, thank you for your love. Thank you that your love is healing and not condemning. And so while we confess to you each of our own tendency to put something or someone else on the throne of our life rather than you, Thank you that you love us in this moment. You do not condemn us. Thank you that you offer your power to do what's not possible for us, but what is possible with you. And you offer to give us abundant life as we follow you with you in the center. And we will do so now. And we reflect as we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.